This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. What a beautiful day. It makes you think of the outdoors and going outside and enjoying the great outdoors. And we have a lot to offer here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, anybody who loves uh, wildlife in in particular or spending time in the woods or or, uh, thereabouts uh, knows that we have some pretty wonderful wildlife and access to it. But earlier this month, the provincial government announced some changes in the endangered species listings. A total of 65 species of plants, birds, trees, animals, and insects are on the province's endangered species list. The status of two of those species, a subspecies of the red crossbill, that's a type of bird, of course, and the tiny plant, the Mackenzie's sweet fetch, have been downlisted from endangered to threatened, while seven other species are now listed as threatened. Another five are vulnerable. Well, my guests today are with the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. They include Shelly Moore, Senior Manager of Wildlife Research. Shelly Garland is Ecosystem Management Ecologist specializing in species recovery. And Jessica Humber is Ecosystem Management Ecologist focused on biodiversity. They're all joining us from the Corner Brook area. Hello. 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 Hi, Linda. Hi. So, Shelly Moores, let's start with you. What is the Endangered Species Act and what does it aim to do? So the Endangered Species Act was put in place in 2001, uh, December of last, uh, this past December was the 20th anniversary of the legislation being in place. It was the province's response to the Accord for the Protection of Species at Risk, the National Accord, and that was a response to the Convention on Biological Diversity that was signed on by Canada back in uh, 95, I believe it was. And um, the Endangered Species Act was put into place to protect those species that we are starting to become concerned about, those that uh, we're seeing declines or um, were only found here and we wanted to make sure they were maintained on the landscape. How are the designations typically made? So under the Endangered Species Act, there are two assessment committees that are recognized. Nationally, we have uh, COSEWIC, or the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. And COSEWIC, like I said, makes assessments on a national scale and looks for those things that are at risk in Canada. Um, Then under the Act, we also formed a provincial committee, the Species Status Advisory Committee, and they do more of the regional, provincial species at risk, and they'll have a look at things that are, are not quite doing too well here in the province. So are these typically species that are already on the radar or, you know, through your regular work and your observations, you start to notice differences? Well, that's one of the cool things about having this legislation in place. When it was first put in place, it was those things that were already on the radar. But because of the awareness that was um, made through those initial assessments and those initial listings, we started to look at other species that we we didn't know a lot about or we uh, were starting to become more concerned about. So as time has progressed, um, the species that have been put on that list are ones that we've gathered information since those initial listings back in the early 2000s. So now we're diving in, like you said, into species that we never listed before, invertebrates, insects in particular, bees and ladybugs and 
um, looking at how we can start conserving those aspects of our biodiversity. And I want to talk about some of those in, in a few minutes, but what, what specifically does it mean when a species is added to the list? So depending on what that status is, it could afford the species protection. So those that are listed as threatened and endangered have uh, prohibitions under the Act. You can't harm, harass, or um, disturb those species. Um, Those that are vulnerable, there are no prohibitions put in place except for those that fall under traditional legislations like Forestry Acts or the Wildlife Act. Um, But in both species, both sets of species, those that are threatened and endangered and those that are vulnerable, uh, it starts the department looking at uh, mechanisms for conserving and recovering those species. So we have to do recovery planning and management planning for vulnerable species. With the recovery planning, we engage stakeholders, pull together recovery teams, and start working on the recovery plan. Uh, With management plans, we often do those internally, but where it's a species that may be of interest to several groups, we'll pull folks together and start talking about what we need to do to conserve and recover those species. So in terms of the recovery planning, and I'm not sure who's uh, best... um, um you know, uh, to answer this question. But we've got two species now that have been downlisted. I'm assuming that's good news. Um, The red crossbill and the Mackenzie sweetfetch. Was any recovery planning involved in that? And what what led to those downlistings? Um, For the downlistings, it was based on an assessment, which would have been the result of some of those activities that took place. through the implementation of recovery plans that were uh, developed after those two species were listed. So um, with respect to red crossbill, we have got a range expansion, uh, or our understanding of the range uh, has grown. Um, In the national assessment, Kosiwik found that the species is also, or subspecies is also found on the Anacosta Islands in Quebec. So that broadened the area and increased the population numbers that we know for the species as a whole, and that allowed it to be downlisted as part of of their assessment. Um, With respect to Mackenzie Sweetfetch, very similar because it was listed. We started doing more surveys and doing some more population monitoring um, and uh, found that the numbers were a bit higher, and that allowed it to be downlisted as well. In terms of the subspecies of the red crossbill, how does it differ from the, you know, the general population? I'm going to give Shelley Garland that question. Um, there are a couple of differences that um, could be found with the red crossbill subspecies, the Perkna subspecies, um, that's endemic to um, eastern Canada. And a lot of times it, uh, the call is different, the vocalization is different, as well as there are some morphological differences. So there's only small differences, but they have found that they are genetically different. That's fascinating. So unless you really understand the species, uh, you might not know the difference? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so this is unique to Newfoundland or the East Coast? Yes. Yeah, the Perkna subspecies is. Red crossbills are found throughout Canada, other subspecies of them, but the Perkna subspecies um, is Newfoundland and Quebec, and well, southern Canada. And, Canada. and the range is expanding, is that correct? Well, they've recently found that they're, uh, we had thought that they were only breeding here in Newfoundland, but with, re- uh, with uh, improved surveys or increased surveys, they have found that they're breeding on the Anticosti Islands as well. 
And what attracts them to this area? Is that they've been isolated in this area for ever so long uh, to create the subspecies? I'm just wondering about the development of the subspecies as opposed to the, the main uh, population. A lot of times that's what happens. It's when a uh, species is genetically isolated from other subspecies. And who can tell me about the Mackenzie sweet vetch? Because for most of our listeners, I'm sure they have no idea what that could be. Well, uh, the Mackenzie sweet vetch is found, um, that one is found on the port of port Peninsula only in two locations. So it's a boreal um, a boreal arctic plant species from the pea family, and it has uh, purple flowers. So um, additional search efforts, like Shelley Moore said, have found that um, the population estimate is larger. It has grown slightly, or it ha- is larger than we originally thought. So that is found um, on the limestone barren areas of the port of port Peninsula. That's fascinating. Just one place in the entire province uh, with this uh, particular species. And it seems to me that we have a lot of these type of uh, boreal plant species that are unique to this place. Um, yes, we do have a lot. There's a lot um, that are unique to certain um, areas like limestone barrens, for example. Uh, there's a lot of species that are um, adapted to that habitat, whether they um, are adapted to the um, geology of the area, like the limestone barrens or calcium-loving species, or they're geographically isolated. Or And there's some species on the northern peninsula that are found. There's three species there that are found nowhere else in the world other than on the limestone barrens of the northern peninsula. Fascinating stuff, and I want to talk to you more about some of these species on the list and uh, what it all means when we come back after the break. My guests today are with the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. They include Shelley Moore, Senior Manager of Wildlife Research. Shelley Garland is Ecosystem Management Ecologist specializing in species recovery. And Jessica Humber is Ecosystem Management Ecologist focused on biodiversity. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. We're talking about endangered species in Newfoundland and Labrador. We have so many unique species here in the province. My guests today are all with the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, and they're located in Corner Brook. They include Shelley Moores, Shelley Garland, and Jessica Humber. And um, um, I don't know who could best answer this, but are more species added to the list all the time, or do some actually come off of it? Uh, Shelley Moores, I'll take that question. Um, we do have some species come off the list, but we haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, we are expecting in the next few years to see some of the species, because of recovery efforts, actually start coming off. Um, but we got to think about this in terms of a long-term process when it comes to species at risk. We only, when we first started out, we only knew a little bit about a handful of species, and as time progresses, with the implementation of the legislation and us starting to learn more and more about what we call lesser known taxa like our invertebrate fauna, um, the uh, vascular plants, we're learning more and more about the diversity, where they are, what what threats those those species are under, and even starting to get into understanding a bit more about uh, things like lichens and uh, fungi. 
we could see the, the list continue to go up, but we have to remember that those things, the reasons they're going up is because we're learning more and we're understanding more, which is part of the recovery process as well. And Jessica, you focus on biodiversity, and I suppose this is where this comes into the conversation, because really, um, even if we don't understand the species or its role in the ecosystem, it still plays an important role. Absolutely, it does. Every species plays some sort of role, whether it's as a predator of, an, of another species or a, a competitor or a food source. Um, each species is important for for biodiversity in in a multitude of ways, some of which we understand and some of which we're still learning about. But uh, certainly, um, you know, major declines in biodiversity have a lot of negative impacts for the ecosystem on the whole and also for people because, you know, we require this this broad variety of species and ecosystems and even, even a diversity of genetic material in the species that we have. Um, in order to have a healthy functioning ecosystem that provides the services that we need as well. Well, you're sort of touching on it there, but what sort of factors are involved in affecting a species status or biodiversity as a whole? Um, So I... What do you mean, Linda? Like, are you looking like what? I'm wondering in terms of climate and generally? human encroachment, active um, or, or human activity, habitat loss, disease, like you say, uh, genetic diversity, those kinds of things. Right. Okay. Yeah. There are so many different impacts to biodiversity, and you've named a lot of them for sure. Um, you know, across the across the globe, habitat loss is an important one, of course. Um, there are so many different types of developments in urban expansion and, you know, human populations are increasing and people are traveling around more as well. So it's, it's all those sorts of things, habitat loss. Um, you know, a big one that we're really seeing a lot of is introduction of non-native species. Um, this is particularly an issue in our province because islands just tend to be more susceptible to non-native species invasions. Um, we tend to have lower native biodiversity in these places. So when a species gets introduced here accidentally, um, they they tend to go crazy. There's not as much, there's not as many predators on them. There's not as many competitors. Um, and so we're seeing more and more that the introduction of non-native species is really a major factor impacting biodiversity. And, and uh, that is actually one of the major threats for many of the species that we've just listed under the uh, Provincial Endangered Species Act. And you, we talked about that just a few uh, days ago, as a matter of fact, uh, Jessica, about the white nose syndrome and how it's affecting bat populations here in Newfoundland and indeed in all of North America. That was something that was introduced from another continent. So uh, how do you control the introduction of non-native species or invasive species for that matter? It's not just a simple answer, I don't think, and how to control. It really depends on the the critter that you're looking at. And I think if it was a simple thing, we'd we'd, we'd have a lot more control over the situation. But with people traveling here and there and over the globe, it's just continuously, we are seeing more and more introductions. But I guess maybe the best way to answer that is to to provide some specific examples. So... As you mentioned, the, we chatted about bats and white nose syndrome last week. And in that case, you know, once the inter, initial introduction of white nose syndrome occurred in North America, 
um, while there are some things that people can do to prevent rapid spread of the fungus um, by like decontaminating their clothing equipment if they're working around bats and that sort of thing, a lot of the spread is now just occurring after that initial introduction, um, bat to bat, and it, it's tough to control. Um, so there are some other examples that I guess are a little bit easier to potentially provide some control over. Um, one of those would be uh, looking, at, for example, at the transverse lady beetle. We just listed this species as vulnerable within the province. Um, it used to be one of the most common and broadly distributed lady beetles in all of Canada. Um, and right now, it's pretty well absent throughout the Maritimes in southern Ontario. It's still doing well in some parts of its western range, but um, it's, it's very, very uncommon. Um, one of the primary reasons, or the primary cause, um, for declines in this native lady beetle species and, and also others, is the introduction of non-native lady beetles. So, here in the province right now, we've and throughout Canada, there's been introduction of seven spotted lady beetles. There's also the multicolored Asian lady beetle. Those are kind of the two main players when it comes to exotic uh, lady beetles, and they just seem to be absolutely wiping out the native species. So, um, you know, they outcompete native lady beetle species. They're bigger. They're more voracious uh, eaters. They can swallow up those aphids much faster than our native species. Um, they also they also actually eat the larvae and the eggs of our native lady beetle species. And they've also shown, been shown to introduce a number of different uh, pathogens and diseases to our native species as well. So uh, many, like many of those initial introductions of the non-native lady beetles are sometimes for use in greenhouses. And in the past, that's sort of been more of a common thing to bring in some of these non-native lady beetles to help um, with natural pest control within greenhouse environments. But, um, you know, we, we've learned more about this. Sometimes there are escapes of these uh, these biocontrol species into the wild and you know as a result throughout Canada we're seeing these major declines in native lady beetle species so that's one thing is just to um, you know I guess follow regulations as it relates to what you import into the province and become informed on um, you know which species can potentially be damaging to native wildlife if you're importing. Oh my goodness, um, I had no idea. You know, when you see that ladybug and you've got it on the tip of your finger or it's on your windowsill and you're watching it ever so interestedly, what species is that typically going to be if you just happen to encounter a ladybug in the in the natural environment? Uh, very commonly, it's going to be probably the seven-spotted lady beetle, which is a non-native species, but it absolutely just has the populations have exploded throughout Canada and you commonly see them in large numbers on trees and they're also really adaptable they can they can uh, eat aphids off of it like in a wide variety of ecosystem types and and tree species and shrubs and flowered plants and all that so you're likely to if you see it you're likely to see a non-native species but um, you know in the past one of our more common native species was a two-spotted lady beetle and the great thing about lady beetles is that they're actually very recognizable just by their their uh, color patterns. So it's actually a really great, um, you know, just helping to 
observe and report the wildlife that you see can be really valuable to the to the province because species like lady beetles are easy to recognize just based on those color patterns and um, we're, we're certainly interested in things like you know photographs of lady beetles that um, you might observe because you know, in the case of the transverse lady beetle, we, we had a record a few years ago from the Deer Lake area, just a member of the public sent in a photo, and that was actually the first record we had of that species for many, many, many years. So there's great value in people reporting these sorts of things. But um, Not to go on too long, I guess I gave a couple examples there of, uh, you know, in particular non-native introductions and how that can impact some of these species that are, risk, that are listed, but there's a, a number of other examples as well. One of the big things is not moving firewood from one place to the next. Um, for example, you know, they, um, we recently listed black ash within the province and black ash trees and other ash trees throughout much of eastern Canada are being designated by uh, emerald ash borer, which is a, an important, uh, you know, tree pest. And so people bringing firewood onto the island is certainly one way that that could potentially be introduced here. So that's sort of one um, pathway that we're interested in monitoring and, and trying to prevent introductions in that way. Uh, we also have another tree that was just listed called red pine. Uh, the natural red pine populations in the province are threatened by a sclerodiris canker, um, which is a fungal disease that occurs on those trees. And that can also be spread by moving firewood and, um, you know, and potentially other means as well. So the, the examples, unfortunately, are just endless <laughs> in the ways that non-native species can impact our native, our native species. And I was so surprised to see the bumblebee on this list. And I wanted to talk to you guys about that when we get back after the break. My guests today are with the Department of Wildlife, um, for short, <laughs> uh, with the provincial government. Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture is the is the name of the department. Shelley Moore, Senior Manager of Wildlife Research. Shelley Garland, Ecosystem Management Ecologist specializing in species recovery. And we just heard from Jessica Humber, uh, who is Ecosystem Management ecologist focused on biodiversity we'll be back right after this got plans for midnight bring your vocm along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere the vocm all night show midnight on your vocm and we're back. We're talking about endangered species in Newfoundland and Labrador and the new Endangered Species Act, or new listings, I should say, on the Endangered Species Act uh, was put out a little bit earlier this month uh, with some species uh, changing status and the like. And um, Shelley Moores um, with the Department of uh, Fisheries, Forestry and Wildlife, or Agriculture, sorry. Um, the bumblebee, the, what, what's it called? The yellow-banded bumblebee was the one that we recently put on the list as vulnerable. Right, and so uh, I had to look it up, and when I looked it up, I said, oh my gosh, that's the bumblebee we all know. Everybody, well, it's pretty, it's, there's a, there's several that look a lot alike, but that one in particular is actually quite prevalent across the island. There was a citizen science project done a few years back that found uh, several, several records of it across the island. Uh, we did list two others previously, um, 
I think it was last year. Uh, they were one was endangered and one was threatened. Um, they were both cuckoo bumblebees. So the three bumblebees together are actually somewhat interrelated. Uh, the sucklies and the gypsy cuckoo bees are parasitic bees, and they're really good environmental indicators because when you get those parasitic bees, and what I mean by parasitic bees is they lay their eggs in the nest of another bumblebee, it means that your host bee populations are doing really well. And so those two bumblebees weren't doing really well. And the host population is the yellow-banded bumblebee, which is doing a little bit better. It was only listed as vulnerable, but still it's of concern. And um, those three listings were all based on national assessments. So they are nationally at risk. Although, our, like I said, our yellow bandit seems to be doing a little bit okay to here, there are concerns across the, the country, and our populations play into that concern. So um, the, the trick with those three species is that we don't have a lot of recent uh, data on them, um, but what they did is they, uh, the scientists dipped back into the natural history records and they looked at invertebrate collections from universities, from uh, natural history museums, and watched the trends in the number of bees that had been collected over time to see how they were doing, um, and then did, tried to do some spot collecting around the country to get a little bit of a better idea of what the current picture is. and. Collections in the past were much more robust compared to what we're getting now, and that's why they were considered to be in decline and of concern. So what are the, some of the concerns there? Because bumblebees have a completely different kind of uh, life cycle to the, what the, the honeybees that I think people are more um, familiar with that are domesticated bees, as a matter of yep. fact. These are wild bees. But they still have very similar concerns. And like Jessica has been highlighting a lot of those invasive alien species and the diseases, same things that affect the, bumble, uh, the honeybees can, in fact, Im impact the bumblebees. So in our case, we're kind of lucky that we have that healthy honeybee population here in the province um, in terms of disease diseases and the, and the parasites that get into them. And, and hopefully that's also reflected in our, in our wild bees. But that's something that we'll probably be looking at in the long term as part of our recovery efforts. Um, in the case of some of these lesser known taxa, like the, the ladybugs and the bumblebees, when we're starting their recovery programs, it's really going to be about learning more about the situation here in the province so that we can develop um, good mitigations, uh, good uh, recovery actions, and um, moving forward to make sure that we maintain and conserve those species here. And what can ordinary citizens do, um, especially with some of these species that perhaps are not as well known? Um, that's a really good question because we've actually started looking at some some projects uh, through the uh, Species Status Advisory Committee. They're trying to enhance some of the, the information they have on some of these these groups, like the lady beetles. Um, and uh, uh, David Langer, our uh, expert on the SSAC, actually has a couple posts on, I think, is it the Newfoundland Insects Facebook page? Uh, talking about some of those citizen science projects. So just keeping your eyes open. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about them, you can reach out to us. We have um, 
uh, and we can give it to you after the show again, Linda, uh, endangered species email address, and you can reach out to us and ask us some questions about how you can get involved in activities in your area. Um, some of our local um, community groups, stewardship uh, facilitators uh, or community stewardship groups have local citizen science relate type activities that you can get involved with. Um, so you can reach out to some of them as well and find out more things that you can participate in. Um, often anything environmentally related will actually show a benefit to species at risk. Beach cleanups, as long as they're done in line with when birds would be nesting on their beaches and so that they're not disturbing nesting birds, um, local just general cleanups, um, anything related to making sure that you, the activities that you're doing aren't putting species at further at risk. So those species that Jessica talked about, the ones that have um, invasive species or diseases that are related to them, knowing a little bit more about them and making sure anything you're doing, like moving firewood around or even going in caving or something like that is not furthering the spread of those those diseases. Um, one of the big things we have find with respect to our plants, Mackenzie sweet vetch would be one of them, is often ATV use off trails uh, can can damage and kill those plants. So making sure you're staying on those marked approved trails and not going off of the trails um, so that you're not disturbing or hurting the plants. Oh, for sure. And that's a big one because uh, I can remember years ago going up in a helicopter with Dennis Minty, would you believe, hmm. and seeing some of the damage to the bogs in particular because of ATVs. Now, that was quite some time ago. You could appreciate how much that might have changed by now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that is one of the, the main concerns that we have as well. Shelley Garland, you're focused uh, on species recovery, and we've touched on that before, but what, what is involved in a, a species recovery plan? Because I know there are two kinds of philosophies there. One is, you know, intervention and, and, and when to intervene and what that looks like. And, and there are other philosophies that say, you know, try not to do as, uh, that much, you know, intervening, but also you know, help with uh, things to prevent further change. So how do you strike that balance? How does, how does that work? Well, um, it takes a lot of people and a lot of expertise together to come up with this for different species. So when a species is listed as endangered or threatened, um, that means under the Endangered Species Act that they would require a recovery team to be put in place. So, and to, in order to come up with a recovery plan. So, recovery teams are usually made up of species experts and indigenous governments and organizations, people from academia, non-government environmental organizations. Um, there's relevant uh, provincial and federal government departments and um, industry representatives. So, what would happen is that those people would come together and meet. Um, their role would be to write a recovery plan. So. A recovery plan is a guidance document for anybody interested in recovery. They guide the, the implementation of the recovery program. So in a plan um, would identify uh, existing information that we already have. Sometimes that's really lacking, but some species it isn't. Uh, so we make sure that we're trying to compile the information that we have. And by doing that, we also identify information that we don't have, some gaps. So those are areas that we could focus on with research and monitoring, which really helps. And uh, sometimes, like I say, that can be a huge amount of information that we're lacking. We, it's, we have um, 
newly listed species that are, are poorly understood in the province or they may have been nationally listed. And so we also bring together um, Indigenous and local knowledge, and we um, also discuss threats to the species and habitat. And um, we also, uh, by doing that, you could also identify habitat that is critical to the survival or, of the species or important to that species. Um, and at, when the group is to, gets together, uh, one of the things that they we come up with is some goals objectives and actions that could help like so like you said and like Jessica and Shelley have mentioned in the past there's some things um, that come up a lot in a lot of recovery plans not everyone is the same obviously and there's no um, they don't have to stick to any certain rule they just they tend to include a lot of this similar information which would be identifying areas where we could fill gaps with monitoring and research um, developing mitigations for threats where possible because we've already tried to identify threats that we know throughout the plan. Um, so we want to, sometimes there's the development of best management practices or just ways that we can uh, mitigate any threats to the species. Um, and also a big thing with a lot of species, um, this is huge, is that um, a lot of times people don't realize that they're endangered. They have no idea that they're in a, a sensitive habitat or in, a, a, in an area where uh, endangered species are. They don't know what they look like. They don't know what they can do to help them or prevent uh, harming them. So that's where stewardship and education comes in. So we work with a lot of non-government um, environmental organizations, other other government organizations as well, to develop stewardship and education materials. So there's uh, school programs, brochures, signage, just to, uh, and there's many other ways, but um, just to make sure that people um, are aware where they are and where they should or shouldn't go or, or how they could affect the species. Or another way is to reach out to people that are working in, that could be out working in the woods or working in the field and, and places where these species could be. So we would provide them with educational information to help identify the species, photos or habitats that they might be found in a lot. And then um, another way is to identify protection measures for the species and habitat. Some are already in place, um, such as like some protected areas, national parks, provincial parks, um, reserves, things like that. Um, but then to identify ways that we can protect the species otherwise. So that's what would be, that was like the role of a recovery team and what would be in a plan. And uh, once the plan is written as guidance, um, then anybody can use that to help guide how they would, as an organization, um, universities, students, things like that, that want to come up with, uh, that want to do school um, programs or do, do their research, um, it can help guide them. And it can also help guide anybody that wants to become involved further. So that's what we, um, that tends to be the role and what we do in terms of recovery planning. And then we implement the plan. So um, sometimes we do some of the monitoring here within the department. And a lot of times that is uh, facilitated with help through partners that we have, um, including uh, non-government organizations, other government organizations, indigenous governments and um, communities, um, and the general public and community groups. Do you find people are generally on board when they when they find out that uh, there's a species unique to that area in their area? Did, are they on board with stewardship? 
a lot of times they really are. It, it's great to see actually there's there's towns that become really involved with it. There's green teams that want to get involved. There's um, communities throughout the province that have um, home of the, say, for example, home of the Brea on the northern peninsula or um, piping plover uh, groups that people people really want to get involved or they're fascinated by because they weren't as aware, like a lot of times, a lot of times the endangered, the species that we have listed on the Endangered Species Act aren't the most common ones that you see. So, um when you can point it out to people and you have people that want to come on board and they just want to help out and they want to get involved. So that's why we've said um, it's huge that a lot of the range information that we have on these species comes from the public reporting them and programs that are ongoing through organizations that we work with, like Intervale Associates. They um, run, they've been running the um, Martin Hair Snag program. And so they coordinate volunteers to collect that information. So we have a huge amount of information on the range of Martin for that, for that reason. A lot of times we get a lot of people write uh, emails in to um, let us know about Red Crossville sightings will be another one that we get a lot of uh, because people see them a lot at their feeders. That could be really important when it comes to um, evening growth speak, which is just listed as vulnerable as well, or uh, bank swallow. A lot of times birds, uh, people notice them a lot when they're out and about, and um, it would be great to have people write in. Uh, Shelly mentioned the email before, but I'll just state it just um, in case anybody's interested. It's endangeredspecies at gov.nl.ca. So you can send in any sightings of any of these species or any species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act, and that uh, really helps with our understanding of the range of these species. My guests today on On Target are with Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. We're talking about the Endangered Species Act and some of the more recent listings. Uh, we've been hearing from Shelley Moores, Shelley Garland, and Jessica Humber. And uh, when we come back, we'll hear a little bit more coming up right after this. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And we're back. We're talking about some of the province's endangered species, and the latest listings came out earlier this month. Our guests today are with the Department of Forestry, uh, Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. And uh, Shelley Moore's the the pine martin was brought up just recently, and we've been we've heard a lot about the Newfoundland pine martin and how it's been become a bit of an endangered species. And a lot of people have really taken that one to heart because it doesn't hurt. I suppose that it's cute. Um, so. How, how is the pine martin doing these days? It's actually a real timely question. We just completed an assessment with our with under Kasiwik, uh, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. They've just released their results uh, from the latest uh, review of the status of that species, and it's doing better. Uh, they're recommending that the species actually be downlisted again. So it was initially assessed as endangered. So back when the Endangered Species Act was put into place, uh, it was listed as endangered endangered in 2003, I think, is when the first listings were, were formalized. Uh, then it was reassessed, uh, I think, around 2004. 
four or five, maybe seven. I'm, I can't really remember the exact date, but it was uh, at that time it was downlisted a threatened. So a lot of actions had taken place initially um, from the time that the species was recognized as being at risk, um, and then the formal listings taking place in the early 2000s. We had changes in forestry activities. The forest industry came on board and started making sure they weren't harvesting in areas where we had marten. Uh, we had changes in snaring and trapping to ensure that we weren't getting incidental bycatch. So then moving forward from that uh, midline assessment where it's, it moved down to threatened, uh, we continued to change the, the snaring uh, requirements in the province, changing the snare wire. Uh, trapping was changing. We were doing a lot of stewardship work. Um, Shelley mentioned the Intervail project, which had trappers involved, the general public involved in getting more data from the landscape. Um, and in the last couple of years, we've been working with Kosiwik to develop their status report uh, based on that information coming from the hair snag work. And uh, the recent, like I said, the recent assessment was vulnerable. And really, it was the only way to put it is a team effort. Everybody was involved in the recovery of that species. And uh, it's going to be changing now. Um, once that species gets recommended, uh, the formal recommendation will come back from the committee in the fall in their annual report. And once it gets downlisted. Now we've got to look at what happens to Kate, make sure that we keep it um, vulnerable or even keep improving um, that species status. But at this point, the prohibitions will start to change. Um, land use activities will be able to start to change. But because I think there's been so much buy-in by all these stakeholders and they've been so actively involved in the recovery of the species, I think everybody's going to want to make sure that anything we do going forward keeps that species improving and uh, back on the landscape. And it's really a good news story. And I think that's one of the things that I want to make sure that people are aware of is that, uh, yeah, we did just list um, several more species on the endangered species list. But this is not bad news. This is a time to start creating good news. It's time for people to start getting involved and and recognizing that our our actions have reactions to them. And there's ways that we can make sure that these species, which many of us are 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 attached to or are um you know we really value them on the landscape and we want to make sure that any of our actions maintain those those species here and that's uh, one of the key components of our species at risk policy for the province is that recovery is everybody's business and it was everybody's business with Martin, everybody from industry, regulators, the public, um, our indigenous partners, everybody was involved in the recovery of that species and we have a success story here in the province. Well, that's great to hear because it ta had taken the headlines for such a long time and there was some real worries about the habitat loss in the old growth forest where it uh, it uh, lives and flourishes. So it's good to hear that when change is made, success can result. Yeah, and we really do have to give some credit to the industries as well. Like they've been actively involved in helping us get information and 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 mitigating for Martin so that we see that that expansion across the landscape and and there is quite a bit of habitat out there for them now. Well, it's so good to hear, and I'm, I'm glad that we're ending on this on a happy note, because uh, for all too long, we've been hearing about the Endangered Species Act, and I think a lot of people feel that that bit of anxiety, knowing that, uh, you know, what can we do to help and feeling helpless, but uh, there's lots we can do. There's lots we can do. Well, any final thoughts? 
I, I think just wrapping it up exactly in, in what we're saying now is at getting involved, um, not looking at this as a negative thing, but an opportunity to, uh, in some cases, with the species that are, are going on that list as vulnerable, these are nationally vulnerable species, and we probably still have some very good populations here in the province. So showing what a great home Newfoundland is to nature, Newfoundland and Labrador are to nature, and uh, just getting involved in ensuring that those species are maintained on the landscape, uh, listening to some of the advice that scientists are giving around the health and well-being of, of the, the various species populations. A uh, good example there is around the birds with some of the concerns we have around bird feeders at certain times of the year because of frounce. Um, we know there's concerns right now with avian influenza for many species of birds. So listening to the news on those, on those sorts of issues that are creeping up and making sure that your actions are in line with what's being recommended to help conserve those species. Um, you know, sticking to the roads or the trails, um, recognizing that your footprints go beyond where you are, those sorts of things. Well, I want to thank all three of you for the work you do, first of all, and, and secondly, for joining us on the show this afternoon. It's been eye-opening and a really fascinating conversation. Shelley Moores, Senior Manager of Wildlife Research. Shelley Garland, Ecosystem Management Ecologist specializing in species recovery. And Jessica Humber, Ecosystem Management Ecologist focused on biodiversity. They're all with the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture based in Cornerbrook. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you very much, Linda. Thank you, Linda. And, of course, uh, thanks for everyone for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye for now.